Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com. Welcome back to the show. Today we have Krista Quarles. She's the CEO at Corel Corporation. Krista, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you on the show. The, the thing, and I mentioned to you this earlier before we started kind of recording, is I basically, Corel was the first company in graphics program that I was using in kind of the 90s in grade school, building my covers of my book reports and other kind of assignments. And so I always kind of credit Corel as being what got me fascinated about becoming a designer before I even knew that that could be a thing. And so I'm excited to have you on the show, but maybe before we get into your incredible journey and all the fun stuff and amazing things you've done, let's get to know you a little bit better and start off with where you grew up. Sure. So I grew up um, just outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So um, had to be a sports fan as part of uh, just making it through that time period. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. So you went to university. What did you take and why? Yeah, so I actually stayed local. So I went to Carnegie Mellon. And I, interestingly enough, I um, I must have been impacted to some degree by uh, you know, sort of the fall of communism almost, you know, so the Berlin Wall came down in 1989 and I was intrigued by what was going on over there. And, it, you know, I ended up majoring in economics and German at Carnegie Mellon. I have some German heritage, but it was really trying to understand and piece together that world that was coming around me. And so you're just, you know, everybody's, I guess, a, a product of their times. Um, I was also really good at math, uh, but, you know, I, you know, the, the um, kind of actual sciences like biology and whatnot were, were less interesting. So I guess I, I veered into the dismal science. <laughs> um, and, and as, you know, what's the old, you know, econ you know, economics joke, and it's like, why do we have, you know, economists? It's to make weathermen look good. Um, you know, but there was something about the, the lack of precision, but then the universal description of what economics was, right? Like this whole idea that, you could really map out entire countries, business process, and you know industries, and how all of those pieces fit together in a macro context. But then, you know, how they ultimately root out in a micro context, I, I found fascinating. Interesting. So, you get out of university. Walk us through your career getting your MBA, what made you want to get an MBA, and then continue walking us through your career up until uh, Corel Corporation, because you've done some incredible stuff along the way, so maybe give us some highlights too. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, um, when I when I left university, I went to go work on Wall Street. I would say, you know, that was circa 1995. That was when, I would still say that, like, to work in finance was considered the ultimate space for young graduates. Obviously today, I would say more young graduates go into technology maybe than, than finance. But, uh, you know, the idea of going in and working in that regard, I mean, I, my early days, you know, I, I, when I was at Merrill Lynch, so I, I went, went there right out of undergrad. I mean, it was a really 
rough and tumble environment. And it was a very interesting place to kind of cut your teeth on what corporate America looked like. Uh, very aggressive, you know, people swirl. So it was a very interesting space. And so I kind of looked around and I, I, it was really like, wow, this is, this is what it takes, I guess, to succeed in business. And so sometimes your best lessons might be the lessons where, you know, maybe you're not <laughs> seeing the best behaviors necessarily of people. And, uh, and so that was interesting. I mean, I, but I always kind of knew I was going to go and get my MBA. I have four older sisters who all got their masters. And so it would have been oh, strange, strange if I hadn't also done so. And so, you know, went to Harvard. Um, but it was an interesting time also to be at Harvard. Uh, you know, I graduated in 2000. So dot com 1.0. So a lot of my friends right. were starting new companies, getting written up in the New York Times. And I was still, you know, I was graduated at the age of 26. And I was like, wait, I still don't really know who the heck I am or what I want to do. How on earth am I going to start a company or much less, you know, I've never even, you know, so the whole idea felt so strange and foreign. And so um, I kind of did the next best thing, which I attached myself to the growth economy and went out West, worked for a West Coast boutique investment bank called Thomas Weisel, which is now Steve Hope Financial. And I was covering essentially the internet. Uh, so I was I was on the sidelines, but not actually in the game. And so watching and taking companies like Google public and really getting wow. in under the hood to understand like, okay, how do these companies work? How do they look at infancy? How do they look at scale? What made a good investment versus not? How do, how do you predict that? What business model tends to work? What are the margin structures of those business models? So really, you know, I think unlike if you had the opportunity to work at a couple of companies and came up on the operating side of the, the, the space, by virtue of me being and looking at lots and lots and lots of companies, what I felt like I was able to do was build a fair amount of pattern recognition around what was going to make a successful company. And one of the things I always say is like, where you invest your time is more valuable than where you invest your money in many cases. And so how and where you choose to work has a big implication on, you know, the the outcome and the success that you ultimately achieve. So came out West, you know, was was in the growth economy, took a bunch of companies public, obviously the, you know, the market like completely, tanked in 2001 thankfully i had more <laughs> debt I, I personally had more debt than equity at that point for myself so i was a i was a net debt <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, that's good, situation because i had to pay for my own college and so i had a ton of like student debt so i it didn't hurt me physically but it you know from a financial point of view but it was so fascinating to kind of watch you know kind of an initial cycle and what happened and how you know who rebirths out of that that's super interesting to me like which companies are formed in a down cycle often are some of the strongest ones because they have to learn to be a bit more austere they have to make choices they're confined capital isn't flowing everywhere so they have to be more thoughtful and so i, I do believe in some of the the kind of the limitations that get put on companies often yield the best companies as a result. But it got to the point where actually I'd, I'd had my first kid and I, you know, the, the lifestyle of an analyst was pretty punishing. Get in 4.30 in the morning, leave sometimes 11 o'clock oh, wow. at night. You know, I was working West Coast uh, or East Coast investment banking hours kind of thing. Um, but I also just felt like I was meeting with all of these companies to figure out if they were going to be the next big IPO. And I was talking to these CEOs and I was so energized. I was like, I would think about their business and where it could go and all these ideas. And I had just this incredible landscape of, of what I thought needed to happen. 
And I kind of looked at myself in the mirror. I was like, why am I on the sidelines? Like, like, you know, the armchair quarterbacking idea, like, why don't I just get in the game? And I think being in Silicon Valley in particular and being, you know, a service provider, a hanger on, an outsider, I wanted to just do it. And so in 2009, I left, in fact, I left a um, seven-figure bonus on the table that I was going to get paid wow. two, or th- two or three months later, which some people say is crazy, <laughs> to go to a startup. And, 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 and to me, you know, I, I felt like that was the right trade-off. So it was a huge risk, a huge you know, investment ultimately in myself. I went to a 150-person company um, that was spending money like crazy. We bought eight companies in eight months, uh, and then we wow. got bought. But but then we got bought by the Walt Disney Company like under a year into my tenure. Wow. And so that was also a very interesting kind of corporate journey because you went from hyper frenetic, crazy startup, you know, just all out to, you know, this 90 year old media company. And I was a tip of the spear in terms of the integration. And so just really understanding almost even in an anthropological context, like how does Disney do it? Like how do they even move this many people around? This is fascinating. What's the culture like? Well, how do they get it done? You know, where, where do they, you know, what do they value? Um, and so it was a pretty interesting kind of uh, juxtaposition, I guess, between the two. But Disney was fantastic to me. We, I got promoted three times, three years there. And they. Wow. Um, it was really where I transitioned, I would say, from being a, a straight up t- financial professional to being an overall GM operator. You know, they, they kind of live mini CEO. So I have my own P&L inside of Disney. And it was really where I learned you know, ultimately how to, how to lead and become a manager of an entire business or business unit. So that was my training for my CEO training. And you know, folks like Bob Very Iger, cool. who were the, yeah, there, who are just um, incredible in their own right. And, and uh, I, you know, I feel so lucky to have interfaced with him at all. And he, you know, spent sometimes more time with our business than he probably should have from, uh, from the P&L size, but if you look at, you know, transitions of organizations, Disney's one of the few that really did make the leap into the digital landscape. And I think, you know, it was, it was through even acquisitions like ours, which I would say was not ultimately successful internally, but really got the whole organization at Disney rethinking how, how, you know, how do we compete for time in a modern digital media universe and where do we go from there? Um, and from there, you know, I, I, you know, just to kind of touch, I mean, I, 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 but I was commuting down to Burbank more and more and more, and I lived in Northern California. So I, I oh, did wow. a stop, I did a stopover at a company called Nextdoor, who's, you know, the private social network for your neighborhood. And, yeah. um, you know, I think for me, that was probably a company that was too, too early. You know, I think back to what is the right, you know, one of the questions I ask a lot of people is like, what's the right scale for you? Like what kind of company... And some people can really truly run the gamut in terms of super large, super small, but that is super rare. I found that there are, you know, unique temperaments and personalities are great for super early, super, super um, startup-y kind of, uh, you know, series A, B, maybe even C. And then there's like, you know, scalers. And it turned out, I feel like I learned about myself that I'm a scaler. You know, there's some people who kind of connect the dots and then there's people who multiply the dots and I'm a, I multiply the dots. <laughs> and, no, it's and, important to know that about yourself, right? And, and, and I've gone back and forth trying to figure out, you know, like people push back and say, yes, you're more entrepreneurial than you give yourself credit for. But I, I've seen those early, early companies. And so often, too, it's this grind to product market fit 
that yep. is super challenging and super painful. And frankly, that's why a lot of startups don't make it because they they can't get through the grind to the other side. And and one of the things I think is important to mention there too is just the importance of business model. I think a lot of people think about product in isolation from business model, but I think it's truly endemic to the product market fit. You like if, if you don't have the right business model appended to, it doesn't matter how good or great your technology is, uh, because if you can't extract the right amounts from it or, or whatnot. And, and I, we saw that a little bit at OpenTable. If you look at the difference between, you know, OpenTable took on average 2% of the total spend inside a restaurant. And now compare that to the delivery wow. companies that take between 20 and 30%. You know, it's just a different, wow. it's a different overall business. Now one could argue that 20 to 30% is just way too high, maybe not sustainable. And we've seen this uh, with the, uh, you know, obviously the Epic versus Apple uh, kind of lawsuit around, you know, is 30% vague oh. too high. And Bill Gurley is the most famous, you know, kind of outcome from that. But I think it's an important question. Uh, you know, what is the, you know, when you look at a company like Snowflake or some of these other companies where the business model is as interesting as the technology itself. And and I think that's one of the things that I I really love to dig in on with companies because I think it, it can it can change the outcome. No, I interesting that, that that actually is really quite fascinating because you're right obviously i think a lot's going to get sorted out right now and i i know even just there's been some backlash with and i'm sure it's happening everywhere but even just locally where i live it's like some uh are basically saying like if you order through our website you'll save like 20 or 30 percent off your order just because in unless you and if you go through like Uber Eats or one of the other ones, then you have to pay full price, right? Because they're like, well, well, let's just pass the savings on to the consumer instead of these companies, right? And so I've even seen a little bit of local restaurants kind of fight back at that. And whether that's working or not can be debated, right? And I, I can kind of understand both sides, right? Yeah, and I, and I think it's it kind of lands in at this perennial question around plot, like marketplace companies, actually. So, you know, it's almost always the case that the supplier in a marketplace company hates the marketplace company. <laughs> so, yeah, like, the, the drivers are angry at Uber, you know, the sellers on eBay were angry at eBay, you know, I think your, your restaurant side was not as happy with open but like, and, and so there's a little bit of, of that, but I do think it kind of gets back into what is the sustainability of the model and then should the model change over time right i think the other thing is like people and companies often get stuck and they look at oh well that served us 10 or 15 years ago well sometimes the world has changed and the question is are you prepared as an organization to evolve with that change and you know are, are you are you continuing to innovate not just on the product itself but on the business model uh as you as you look forward no, I, I 100% agree with you. So I'm curious, how did you come to Corel Corporation? And what was the rationale and reasoning that you decided to actually take on uh, CEO? Yeah, so I had um, I had left open table and I needed a hot minute to to take a break. I had been working actually since the age of 10 because I was <laughs> wow. I, I, I was the six of seven kids and my parents were like, well, you know, you need to go to college, but you need to pay for it yourself. So I've, I've always had kind of a, a, a hustle uh, as part of my my kind of overall life. And so it's like, I, I need a break and I need a minute. And uh, and so I took the summer off and I, I got pinged by a different private equity firm. And we, we were looking at 
opportunities in the public landscape. So it was really an entree into private equity. And one of the interesting things, if I were to juxtapose venture versus private equity, you know, venture, you look at the business model, you know, 19 out of 20 companies could fail and it's okay. You know, I think, and, and I think one of the challenges is if you're an employee at one of those 19 companies that are allowed to fail, it can be a pretty frustrating endeavor. Uh, versus I would say on the private equity side, every company needs to succeed, every deal needs to work, uh, just in terms of how the risk model uh, comes about. So I, I, it, was a, it was an interesting kind of entry point and really the, the profound amount of due diligence that um, you know, these sponsors provide kind of coming into these companies and the thesis that they have. And so when I first got pinged uh, from, by, you know, by KKR to look at Corel, I had kind of a little bit of a, you know, certainly recognition as, as you and I chatted in front of this call, but but around like, wow, okay, like I remember like Crawl, Crawl Draw from 1995, like I like I recollection, but a lot of the story and a lot of what has was under the hood, you know, that story hadn't been told, and you know, I think the market was unaware largely that the the business underneath. Corel had 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 really changed, and and you know how you know to put some dimension on that. You know they owned businesses like Parallels, you know which you know most people know as like you know run Windows on a Mac, but there's much more more than that. So we've got like a remote application server business that helps you know small to medium sized IT departments you know to deliver applications, uh, things like that. You know we serve a 25 billion dollar you know kind of market in the the areas that we operate, you know, we're in number wow. one or number two in every country, 60% of our business is outside of North America. So it's a truly global business. And I was, you know, really surprised, frankly, at all of what I saw under the hood, because I don't think that that was understood or known as either part of the, the brand or really the company. And so I, you know, from that was like, okay, that's interesting. And then it really got into, well, how does my background uh, <laughs> help this sure. company? And, and, and I think, you know, there are a couple of immediate opportunities. You know, I had come, um, you know, OpenTable was a part of Booking.com. Booking.com is, you know, the largest advertiser in the world on Google. Uh, right. You know, so I was privy to very sophisticated sales and marketing techniques and, you know, kind of approaches that I felt like were, we were just in the early, early innings of inside of Corel. So it was like, it felt like that was going to be an immediate area of opportunity and upside, frankly, for the business. Um, but it's also just, I mean, to, to kind of, you know, and so I saw, I saw the sales and marketing piece. I saw also, you know, it's a just, you know, organizational opportunity. I think, you know, when you think about channel sales versus direct or digital direct e-commerce kind of sales, um, you know, the organization was sort of set up where one might, conf- you know, conflate with the other as opposed to let's put just put all of our energy in terms of doing what's right for the customer. Let's put every ounce of our focus on what what the customer wants and needs and let's not let our org chart be seen by the customer, which I think a lot of companies make the mistake and do that. Uh, and then I also saw that, you know, the world was also transitioning to more subscription type models. The company had started that transition, but I think leaning more aggressively and, and harder into that was a, was a big area of opportunity. But all of that sat on top of what was just an incredibly just stable business. I mean, you know, I think it gets back into the durability of these software models where, you know, companies, you know, if you need them to get your job done, they become 
essential part of the knowledge worker stack, if you will, and you know try to rip it out of somebody's hands. I mean, the retention rates that we see and and the customers drive and like you know are are central to the thesis of you know these these are just large user bases that you can continue to add on to, and if if they're highly if those customers enjoy it and retain, you know, these are these are pretty powerful business models over time. Interesting. Well, and I also think too is just a lot of the products that you guys own, and Parallels, I think, is a perfect example. But there's a, a handful of others that people probably use every day that have no idea are owned by you guys, right? Um, yeah, that, that's a hundred percent right. And so I think like, you know, parallels in particular, you know, I think, uh, is one where, you know, there's, there's just a lot of really cool and innovative things that that team is doing, you know, really, um, powerful engineering group. I mean, this is a unique engineering capability when you think about it, cause we're writing, you know, a set of instructions down ultimately at the operating system and then hardware level. Uh, and so this is, you know, it's a unique skill set and pretty differentiated relative to, to a lot globally. And I think that there's more, frankly, that we can do. And, and that's what the other piece that's exciting to me is just the upside that I can clearly see through, you know, for, like, you know, our, our like I said, the, the remote application server business. So post pandemic, a lot of IT departments were forced with, oh my gosh, we have an entirely remote workforce. How are we going to provision, uh, you know, applications across that group? How are we going to do so effectively? How are we going to keep tab on licenses? How are we going to figure out? Um, and we saw, you know, even like school districts, you know, kind of lean in and say, oh, goodness, we, you know, we, we've got now all these students. How are we going to do this? Uh, so we, we've seen new and interesting paths of growth in the post-pandemic, you know, what does work look like? Uh, and I think that's something that, um, you know, he, he's, you know, we, we, we've got just a really exciting, you know, team and set of opportunities that are in front of us related to that. Sure. Well, and then even just on the education space, like you guys built a version of Parallels that runs on Chrome OS. And like, I know maybe Chrome OS hasn't broken into maybe the mainstream in kind of enterprise yet, or maybe it has in certain situations, but in education, Chrome OS is dominating, right? And so, it, and and but you guys are, you know, partner with Google to like bring your platform and Windows programs to run on, on a Chromebook, right? And I think more and more people, as they grow up, they don't really care what is happening behind the scenes. They just want to click their app icon and it runs. They don't really care <laughs> if it's run on Windows or Mac or the cloud or the web. It doesn't matter, right? But I think, you guys are really enabling that. And I think as that becomes more and more popular, and as I think a lot more people are working remote and kids are at home, like the technology that you guys are building today is actually really innovative and empowering more than people really realize. Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. I mean, I think when you look at the overall, you know, Chromebook market, you know, it surpassed uh, Mac for the first time uh, this past quarter, I believe. And you're right. I mean, it's education is one of the primary primary offshoots. I mean, we look at Chromebook in particular and say there's, you know, it's the enterprise market also very early on and trying to figure out. Um, but there's the consumer and the education markets that are that are growing pretty meaningfully. But you touched on something that I think is really, really important, which okay. is I think big tech wants you to live within their four walls, 
like, 100%. yeah, you know, I'm on a, I'm on a PC and I use windows and I'm on office 365 and I only use teams and I only, you know, and, and if you stay within that stack, everything does kind of work great. But the reality is because a modern knowledge worker has worked at a lot of different places and a lot of different companies and I had a lot of different experiences, they kind of want what they want, where they want it, how they want it. Like they want their efficiency. Yep. And so one of the things that I think that we do broadly across, I mean, whether it's, it's parallels as you describe. So like I'm going to be operating system agnostic. I can be on a Mac and yet I can run the windows version of Excel on my Mac or I can, you know, in, in the pandemic, we saw Bloomberg, you know, uh, you know, hedge fund guys like wanting to run Bloomberg on their Mac or other other ways. But I think it's it's really about saying, I don't want to be hemmed in to exactly where the big, you know, four walls of technology wants me to live. I want to be more efficient and I'm going to decide how I want to be more efficient. And so one of the things we always say is when you work better, you live better. And so to oh. the extent that we can help workers get the job done really at the end of the day and get it done in the way that they know to be most efficient. Um, we're, we sit in, we sit in that space. And, you know, I think WinZip is another good example where it's like, you know, everyone talks about compression. That's not really why it's interesting. It's really about security. And it's, it's about, you know, being able to, you know, send from one, uh, you know, if I'm in teams sending to somebody in G suite, oftentimes like 50% of the time it doesn't work. Uh, yeah. Like I hit a wall totally. or, and, and vice versa. And so, you know, I think it's really about, okay, how do we make sure that, that all of this is easy? All of this is seamless. Um, you can, you can work where you want to work. And then, you know, and then I think your mobile device too, how do we make sure that that turns into as powerful a tool? And so, you know, parallels access is a great example where, you know, you can, you can turn your phone into, you know, a, a PC. So like creating a virtualized workspace on your phone and and I think these are all of the tools that we're not working in the office exactly anymore. What is the office? What is your work yeah. pl place versus your work space, right? And so I think I think we're 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 kind of leaning in to redefine that because I think workspace has has gotten a, a pretty meaningful redefinition post pandemic. No, I 100% agree with you. The other thing that I think is interesting is you guys are enabling people to do stuff anywhere. And like some people might laugh about running windows on a phone or whatnot, but the reality is, is sometimes you really need to do something and you're out and about and you can't get access to something. And like, you need to make it now, like, and you have no other way to do it. Right. And so unless you've actually been in that situation and I have a few times in my career where you really need something and you understand the importance of that. Right. I think it is actually really useful. I also really think what's cool about what you guys are doing at Corel is your, your big, and you touched on this is like your platform agnostic now. And you're, you're obviously doing stuff for iOS, iPad OS, Android, you know, Mac windows, all, all this stuff. But I think the part of the problem, like, well, and we could pick on Apple as an Apple user. I feel like I can give my grievances with them. Sometimes it's like, you can't do certain things unless you're on a Mac. And the perfect example is like deploy an app to an app store. And I know there's some workarounds in the browser, but for the majority of part, there's certain things you just can't really do. Right. And so I think what I love about what you guys are doing is you're building on the today's popular platforms and enabling people to use whatever tool they want, but use products that they've heard of and are familiar with. 
Yeah, and I think I mean, and there's an equity discussion in here too, where if you if you have a less powerful machine, you know, or you you can't have the latest application, you know, you can virtualize into that application. Like sure. you're, you're you're you don't necessarily need to be hemmed in there. And so I think it really is about giving giving the knowledge worker choice uh, to to be able to do what they need to do to get the job done. And and you know, in some in the case you described too, it's like okay you know, could you use parallels instead of actually just buying another machine, which is often yeah. been some of the case. And I think, you know, obviously given the shortage of chips out there and all that, yep. when I saw the headline, you know, chips are the new toilet paper, <laughs> like there, there just aren't <laughs> enough, enough of them out there. You know, what, what do you do is, you know, is demand for these products has continued to increase. And so, you know, I, I think that they're giving organizations choice to, to run also their business more effectively. And, you know, where, you know, the total cost of ownership is, is less than, uh, what some alternative solutions would be. And, and so, you know, why would you need the whole machine all the time versus, you know, being able to kind of work your way, way into that. Um, so it, we, we do find that it's, it's um, increasingly those, those decisions are getting made and it's our job and our responsibility to, to lean into that from an innovation pathway. Sure. So how have you guys, or what do you see, the future going forward for Corel in, in some of the products that have been around for decades now, like how are you keeping the current user base and actually recruiting new people either for the first time into Corel products or to come back and, and give it another try if they haven't tried it in a while? Yeah, I think it really depends on, you know, which, which of our products. I mean, I think when you look at something like WinZip, I mean, it's, it's almost, uh, Kind of very ubiquitous in its own right. People kind of know and understand, and have probably touched a piece of that. Versus, you know, I think something like Parallels, where um, unless you've maybe had the exact need for it, you may not know that that's even a possibility. And so, I think making sure that sure. what the capabilities are that sit under the hood here are are, are better known. Um, I think that this focus, though, on you know, where do we sit in the knowledge worker stack? Uh, so, you know, again, everybody I know has you know, a Mac or a PC or maybe increasingly a high-end Chromebook and they're on, you know, kind of Office 365 or G Suite and then they're on some, you know, communications platform like, you know, Slack, Teams, uh, you know, Zoom. And, and, uh, and so, you know, one of the things that we like is that, you know, Parallels is almost a, you know, kind of platform application that enables all of those larger applications to sit on top. And then we, of course, have our own larger applications, so the curl draw of the world. And one of the things that we lean into is this idea of making you more productive. So, you know, you know, one of our, you know, the, our mission ultimately is to help millions of people to be productive and creative, you know, anywhere and on any platform. And I think it's the anywhere and on any platform that's also really important, you know, geography wise, uh, you know, OS wise, device wise, et cetera. And I think that that this lean in though to productivity is our central. I mean, you know, we've got obviously competitors in the graphics space that are, um, you know, incredible tools, but may not necessarily be the easiest to use or, you know, maybe, maybe more challenging. Whereas, you know, here it's like, it's about getting in getting the job done because again when you when you when you work better you live better and so how do we create efficiencies for the knowledge workers so that they can they can do what they need to do and so you know we're obsessed about you know the productivity outcomes 
from the people who use our tools. Sure. No, that, that makes sense. It's interesting though, to me, just how you guys have survived the test of time, right? Because, and you've been buying companies and you've been obviously building these new platforms and, and kind of following the trends. So how do you guys make sure you kind of keep doing that and keep innovating on these spaces and in products like Parallels? Because, well, Parallels has been around for 10, 15 years. It's got to be in that range because I remember using it when it first came out on the, for the Mac. I think it's close to 19 or 20, actually. So, yeah. Wow. Okay. There you go. So, time flies. But but how do you make <laughs> sure you're staying innovative? Because even, okay, in 20 years, obviously, Internet's changed astronomically in, in 20 years, right? And that's just one product. And you guys have, obviously, dozens of them. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it gets back to this idea around, uh, you know, how embedded in that knowledge worker stack you become and so when people realize that you know you're um you're going to help them get get things done more more effectively they just stick with you and it, and it gets back to the durability and in, in, of, of software i think you know how do we introduce new people to it i think we've um you know certainly we've leaned in on education markets so you know making sure that if you're in university you can uh, use these tools and use them at a you know more effective price perhaps than you would pay if you were in a corporate setting. Uh, getting people to to understand you know the UI get locked in if you will to to that UI. But I think you know, but it's also about innovation to your point. So like the M1 chip just came out for Apple, and you know we yeah. were the first and only place right now where you can. Uh, lean in and, and run on that chip. We obviously have competitors, but we're the only ones out there who can do that. And you know, it, it what's fascinating to me back to our teams and the speed that which they operate. I mean, they had a prototype on that new chipset in weeks, wow. and you know, we rolled it out. You know, officially months later after QA, and you know, I think you still have to navigate through. Um, you know, a, a you know Windows on ARM technical license to to um, you know the the uh the you know the developer um pathway to to kind of get it to work but we we want to be first and we want to be the ones who are making sure that nobody skips a beat and that you know you're going to be able to use that new apple machine in the way that you knew that you need to and i think you know probably we're it's surprising maybe even to apple right i mean it, you know i, I don't want to speak for them but you know this is the the beauty of the new chips is like you have the full access to the app store and you have all yeah. the applications and all the native applications there. And yet on parallels, we run 200,000 plus applications that couldn't have been run on a Mac. <laughs> Think wow. about that. Yeah. I mean, yeah, so it kind of gets back to the proliferation of software and the fact that, you know, it's been around for a long time and people want to use all sorts of different things. And our job is not to declare what can and cannot be done. Our job is ultimately to make it all happen and to say, sure, you can use that you know, Linux application or you can use this other thing. Uh, we're not going to hem you in. In fact, we're gonna, you know, our whole basis is to enable you to use something anywhere and you know, on any platform. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And that's actually really cool, right? And just staying up on, on the trends of this stuff and, and making sure your stuff works on it. I think so many people, and I would throw myself in this boat, 
get angry when you buy something new and it like the software that you use daily doesn't work or is super buggy. And so the fact that you guys are staying very much on top of this and, and being out and working on the new technology, whether it's chipset or operating system before majority of people are using it, right? I think is actually really innovative in itself, right? Because a lot of companies aren't doing that. Yeah, no, it's I think, yeah, I mean, I, and I think like, you know, the, the, it gets back into, you know, if you're not big tech, you know, I mean, I think that there's, there's a question in there. And I think what we're trying to do is, is really, you know, just be agnostic, like, you know, we're, we're helping you get it done. And, and we want you to not be slowed down by, you know, whatever kind of mandate you've gotten from, from, you know, I have a funny story about a, a friend of mine, he had gone to a, uh, a company and everybody used Max, but he is a, he was a McKinsey consultant. And so of course loved his, uh, excel and his you know and he said he he told me he's like I, I lived a secret double life on parallels uh but i had to carry the mac around inside the office Interesting. Uh, to have street cred and, and so like that's a, i mean it's a funny example but i it's probably not even as rare as we might think where you know he was really comfortable and felt really productive using a certain tool set um yep. let's let's enable him to do that uh and 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 let's make sure that we lean in um and and give give him what he needed no well and i think too so many people are just like they have certain apps whether it's on their phone or even the same version on their desktop it's like well sometimes the phone for certain doing certain things makes more sense sometimes desktop makes more sense sometimes a tablet makes more sense and i know probably a small minority of people would would say even like OS matters depending on what they're trying to do if, if you have access to that, especially as like a de designer uh -huh. and kind of developer, right? Like they're always like, okay, well, you know, I, I'll set up maybe a Linux running inside of Parallels or, or something like that because I like that dev environment for certain things, but I want some of the other stuff that doesn't run on Linux on the, on the Mac, right? And so just being able to enable all that, again, just like that click of that button, like people just want to click work in the application they're they're comfortable with and kind of move on throughout their day and, and learning new software and stuff can be fun, but it's also can be really detrimental, especially if you're billing hourly or on a deadline. It's like, no, I just want to use the stuff that I use all the time and know and can get it done quickest in instead of trying to learn all this new software. Right. And so enabling that I think is more important than I think a lot of people realize. I, I think that's right, and I think you know. I mean, it is it is about what you just described. I mean, it's a, you know, at the end of the day, it's like if it takes you three times as long to complete a task, then you know you're just not very productive. And and I think that's um, you know that's why you know our our entire employee base gets up every single morning is to make out other employees more productive at the end of the day. Sure, that's that's very cool. So I, I know I, I'm curious. You obviously run this global company now, and I hopefully I, I know in certain parts of the world the the pandemic is is getting worse than it's kind of ever have. But once we're through COVID, hopefully sometime later this year, how do you see the whole like working remote as compared to working in the office? Would you have predictions around kind of the future of of companies and work, or or what are your thoughts, or what are you seeing? Yeah, it's funny. Like it was, I think a month into the end of the pandemic last year, I, I went on a 
podcast and talked about how I thought business travel would take a permanent haircut. And I still believe that. I think, I think the idea that people are going to go to Tokyo for a two hour meeting probably diminishes. Um, I, so how, how does, how do we travel to, you know, create trust and to connect with people and to sell our products and to, um, you know, kind of get together. But I think for us, one of the things that I've kind of delineated is I feel like the office is going to be for ideation, collaboration, socialization, like, you know, the things that are really hard to replicate in that remote setting. Um, You know, I did a three hour, three year planning session with the team. And I was like, Oh, you know, it's, it's fine over zoom, but it's not perfectly ideal. And I also think that there's the added benefit of, you know, breaking bread and and building trust that way. But I also, you know, I think see the tremendous, you know, output that our teams have been able to, 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 to provide in these remote settings. Now, remote doesn't always mean work from home, too. I think that's right. another important reminder for people is like, you know, I, you know, my kids, both kids today happen to be at school today, not always and, and every day during the pandemic here, but some people want to escape their home. Some people have like yep. toddlers running around and they need a quiet place. And so how do we make sure that we provide that for, for their employees? But what I think is just interesting is, is, you know, how are workers reacting? Um, how, uh, you know, I've watched a couple of very large companies change their tune um, from beginning to end. And, you know, here is, is like, how are they going to respond to their their employees. And I think, you know, there are companies like Microsoft who really do have it right around leaning into flexibility. And, you know, I, I, I think we're going to do the similar thing of, of, we need to understand what each of our workers needs in order to be productive back to that same conversation sure. we've been having this whole time. And, and I think companies who lean into that will be the more competitive companies going forward. I think workers are volunteers they vote with their feet every single day yeah. like they don't have to come and work for your company and if if they find another company that is is going to enable them to work better and then ultimately live better then i think that that is you know those companies are going to see their you know a fair share of better a better workers there so you know i think that's something that um you know we're going to continue to watch i mean obviously you know, people have talked about the roaring 22s. <laughs> we'll see how that <laughs> goes. But, uh, you know, I, I think people also want to come back and commune a bit. And so there may be a rush rush back and forth. But I think it's leaning into, you know, what do our teams need? What do our workers need? And how do we how do we get the most out of out of them? Sure. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. So I'm curious, you've obviously had a very successful career, worked at a ton of different companies in a bunch of different verticals. And and I know obviously with, you know, you've worked in some industries where I, I would say you've been in a minority position. They're mostly probably male dominated. What advice do you give to people and and women and others that are coming up and, and kind of going through the same struggles? Because I think somebody like you, like they've, clearly made it and have done it and it's doable and i hope things are getting better i I, obviously it's hard for me to judge that not being one of those but what are your thoughts or advice around that and is it getting better i do think it is getting better i mean i look at you know i i I joke that early on in my career you know i showed up to be you know i showed up as a man to be accepted by men Mm -hmm. like i i basically shut off huge parts of my own 
personality, my humanity, because I felt like I needed to fit in in order to be successful. I needed to act and behave like everybody else here. Um, and, and I thought that there was only one archetype for what a successful leader ultimately looked like. And it wasn't really truly until I got to Open Table where I was the CEO of that organization. And I recognized that I was not being as effective in a leader, uh, a leader if, if I was shutting off parts of myself. But certain organizations don't allow for the, you know, the, they aren't safe to, to behave that way, right? And so I think one of the things like Google studied this, you know, the, the top uh, kind of condition for high performing teams is whether or not they feel safe, psychological safety. And the reason for that is, you know, if, if you feel threatened, literally they measure this, like your, your IQ drops like 30 to 70 points because wow. your prefrontal cortex eventually shuts down and you can't, you, you know, you're on alert. And so your amygdala is taking over here and you can't actually perform or be productive or output because you sense threat. And so I think, again, organizationally, we want a space where people can just show up, be themselves, you know, not have to worry about all those things. And it's easy to say, though, I mean, I think The Economist had a cover, like, you know, that was talking about the political CEO. And I think yep. there's a huge debate these days as to what, what role does the CEO have in making commentary about what's going on in the world around us. And I, you know, I, I would love to say it's like, you know, for the companies who are saying, oh, we're not going to say anything political, that in and, is, in and of itself is a decision. And it seems like a convenient decision when maybe you haven't had to deal with all these things. You know, as somebody sure. who, who has had to deal with a lot of these questions and challenges, especially being a woman in business, um, let alone being a woman of color or something in business, um, you know, I've developed and built an empathy for the for the, the 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 challenges that you need to surmount in order to get to the other side. And so I'm I have those top of mind because I experience them directly. And my job ultimately as a leader is to make sure that those are at least, if not wholly removed, because that's probably you know maybe too ambitious. But at least we talk about it. We we you know say that they're there and we have the direct conversations. We're radically candid with one another, um, so that it's not living in the ether but not being said. And I think the minute you 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 pull these things, you know, sunlight is the best disinfectant, as they always say. And so I think sure. to the extent that we shine a light on all these challenges and issues, then we make people more comfortable and more able and capable of talking about them. No, it's interesting. And I think you brought up something that I find it's always kind of fascinated me throughout my whole career is I, as a creative person, I do my best work when I'm the most comfortable in the space. I like the lighting I, I like, <laughs> and, and just like a perfect setup. Right. And like, it always fascinated me and I'm not a morning person. So going to the office and working nine to five, for example, for me, is always been weird because I'm a night person. Sometimes like I can wake up early and I'll, I'm not like really thinking or I don't really feel creative till the afternoon. So I'm like sitting in front of a computer sometimes like just kind of doing whatever when you're supposed to be doing some design work. But like if I could just work at night, I would crush it out in like a couple of hours instead of struggling through it for eight hours, right? And that always kind of fascinated me. And I think I, I I get that doesn't apply directly to what we're talking about, but I think your fact is that if people aren't comfortable, whatever the reason is, if you can make them comfortable or they will find a company that allows them to be com or the most comfortable you can while still kind of doing a job, right? Or, or working for yourself or whatever that means for people. And I think you're right. Like the fact that you 
are open to talk about that and are willing to do that for your company. And, and it comes down from the CEO and people see that and understand that, I, I think is actually really cool in itself. Yeah, I mean, I, I think yeah, I'm also a night owl, so but I would say that the world is created for morning larks. Matthew Walker, yep. who wrote Why We Sleep, talks about this, like that the whole even how you know we start school, like you know, teenager brains want to sleep in to like 10 a.m. You know, but we we force sure. them to go earlier, and so now they're like their brain doesn't even work until later, and, and so then it gets back to to like yeah, how do we work? How do we create the conditions so that you're you're in a position to produce your best best work and your best output? And I you know I I also find that for myself you know it's at night where I do some of my best thinking, uh, and so does does it have to be in one setting versus the other? And I just observed and witnessed my own personal productivity and said, gosh, I feel like, you know, I, I, I've seen how my output changes, but not everybody is the same. So I think, I think it is about leaning into the differences and leaning into the diversity of how people even approach work to say, you know, well, there's many ways to kind of crack a solution, but there are also times where we need to come together. And so that gets back to you, like, you should be able to make the call and the decision about your own individual productivity or individual work session. And then let's come together from time to time and have these bigger ideation sessions and, and how to, totally. how do we approach those? No, I, I think that's really great, but sadly we're out of time. So how about we close with mentioning where people can get more information about yourself and Corel and any other links you want to mention? Sure. Um, you know, obviously, uh, corral.com, parallels.com, winzip.com, uh, mymanager.com are big four products. Uh, you know, you can find me on LinkedIn or Twitter and, uh, you know, I'd love to hear people's perspectives. Perfect. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on the show and I look forward to keeping in touch with you and have a good rest of your day. Thank you so much. It was a lot of fun. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Uh, bye. Welcome to Building the Future, hosted by Kevin Horick. With millions of listeners a month, Building the Future has quickly become one of the fastest rising programs with a focus on interviewing startups, entrepreneurs, investors, CEOs, and more. The radio and TV show airs in 15 markets across the globe, including Silicon Valley. For full showtimes, past episodes, or to sponsor the show, please visit buildingthefutureshow.com.